0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Montel Weekly Podcast, bringing you energy matters in an informal setting. In today's pod, we turn our attention to the UK. Soaring wholesale energy prices on the back of very expensive gas have already claimed 25 of the country's energy suppliers. Could more bankruptcies be on the cards? Is it time to rethink the wholesale market and the marginal cost model? Does the UK need a better system to provide backup capacity for when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine? And is the regulator Ofgem still fit for purpose? Joining me, Richard Sveresen, in answering these key questions is Emma Pinchbeck, CEO of Energy UK, the trade association for the UK's energy industry. A warm welcome to you, Emma. Hi. It's been a busy time for you, Emma. I mean, retailers are going under, people without power following the storms in the north of the country. These things are obviously keeping you fairly occupied, I assume.
1: Yeah, they, I will say... And not glibly because it looks absolutely horrendous in the north of England and I feel for everyone trying to deal with it. But actually, I don't. The only bit of the UK energy industry I don't have in my membership are the district network operators in the UK. So actually, Storm Arwen is one of the few things that has happened this year that is not in my Ballywick to be dealing with the emergency response for. But certainly... The gas price crisis that you you just referenced and what's going on in retail is very much our job at Energy UK, as well as the wider energy transition. So, yeah, it's been fairly relentless and you missed it from your list. But in the middle of all of that business as usual mayhem, we've had the COP, which is kind of outlining a vision for the future economy and the future of energy, which is very different from the energy world we have today. And the UK government is focused on that. As well as dealing with the immediate risks and issues to hand, so it's it's felt pretty relentless i think
0: absolutely i mean we we covered the cop in a, in a recent uh, episode, but because I, I, today I was th- thought we could more focus on, on what's yeah. happening in the u k there's There's enough going there there in a way, but um energy is very much at the forefront of the media attention at the moment as well. I mean, do you find that energy companies are getting unfairly slammed in some sense?
1: I came into this job. Two, a year ago. God, it feels like two years, but it's, it's in fact only a year. Um, I came into the job a year ago and hadn't done a huge amount of work on retail for several years because i have been working on uh, net zero infrastructure and, and renewables for the last several years. And I was really genuinely taken aback at the attitude to retail relative to other bits of the energy sector. And in my job interview, which was two years ago, because I was appointed on maternity leave, my chairman said to me, you know, we want you to lead the net zero transition, you know, we're we want to talk about infrastructure, and we want you to do all of that. But the thing that's going to be really pressing upon your time is the fragility of the retail sector in the UK, because we think that there's going to be a huge challenge coming. And he was remarkably prescient in that. And But also not prescient in that the sector has been making negative margins in the UK for the last um, few years. And they've been going into government and saying, you know, the sector is really fragile. We're not making enough money to innovate. We're not making enough money to be sustainable. And they've been treated with something... I'd say like borderline dismissively by officials relative to what I see in other bits of the market. And so as someone who hasn't been working on retail for the last few years, they have become the bit of my membership I most want to champion because of the way that I've seen them being Hmm. treated by policymakers.
0: Would you say then, you know, that the price cap needs to be reformed?
1: So it's bigger than the price cap. I think the the, U, the UK, you know, as you know, the UK has a price cap. It's the thing people default to when they're asking what the issue is with our retail market. But I think it's bigger than that. So you have to start with what the UK government thinks of as success in our market. And for the last oh, five to 10 years, and certainly post-privatization, and then, and then around the time the price cap was bought in, the view was that the number of people who were switching suppliers, so the number of times people were willing to switch, and the number of market participants that we had, in addition to how low the prices were, these were the metrics that marked out a successful retail market. Now, obviously, if we'd had very high rates of switching or automatic switching, or we were measuring the market on that right now, it'd be a real problem because the way prices are, (laughs) we'd all be being switched to unsustainable suppliers, firstly. And secondly, the way prices are, it's very, very difficult to switch. So switching in itself doesn't really do anything to tell you about the overall state of the market. Instead of looking at single mechanisms like the price cap, we want instead a market for retail, which reflects the wider energy transition. You know, you want a set of retailers that are sustainable, that offer fair, you know, effective services to customers, but also are able to innovate for a future where price and switching might not be the metrics for retail success in a net zero world. In a world where you want to be accessing EVs, where you want low carbon heating systems. We think it's going to be much more about energy services. And so the kind of obsession in policymaking seems to kind of orientate in an idea of retail when we still had six energy supply companies and it was a very different market about selling a commodity. What we've been saying to government is you need to build a sustainable industry that can move with a more volatile market and reflect pricing more accurately, yes, but also that can build for a future where the world might be about services more than about the commodity. And for that, you need, you know, trusting, enduring relationships with your customers and a different metric for what competition is delivering. So, I mean, the price cap is part of that conversation and and we're arguing for some reform of the methodology for sure. But in terms of what you do with the wider environment and how long the price cap stays, that's a question for having some imagination about what retail is for.
0: Do you find that government is listening to you, Emma, or is it also treating you dismissively?
1: Not anymore. I think. <laughs> I mean, there's there's something about going in and saying that the retail market is, just, uh, you know, fragile, and then watching the number of failures we've had, which sort of illustrates your point. Frankly, I wish we could have made it in another way than this, because it's hugely disruptive for customers at this time. You know, the costs of this period for bill payers will be, you know, enormous. Even if you wanted market consolidation or change, this isn't the way you go about doing it. So I feel no satisfaction whatsoever in this moment. We're just really worried about getting people through it in the UK. I do think on the other side of it, government will realise they can't go back to the old world of retail. So in that sense, I think there is an appreciation that policy has to change. And we need to really you know, rehabilitate retail as, a, as an engine for delivering much of what the government is trying to do on net zero and, and in other parts of the economy. You know, they're kind of key intermediaries for everything else, the retailers. So, yeah, I think there has been a change in mindset. For now, the real, real challenge is making sure our customers stay supplied, that we try and as much as possible keep the costs of this, which are policy related, the kind of mutualized cost of the failures and all that kind of thing limited on bills and to make sure that the industry in the UK is sustainable for the next year or so whilst we're kind of plotting what that future looks like.
0: And what what reforms would you like to see then further down the line after we got through this year that energy bills aren't too unsustainable and, and the and the market's still operating? What needs to change?
1: So actually, that's a really an interesting um, point, because another observation of mine is we're much less clear on what retail should be other than what we know what it shouldn't be, which is, you know, a world of thinking about only a commodity and, and lots and lots of switching. The easiest thing to do here is to think about what the infrastructure will be. So in 2030, in the UK, we're going to have a an electricity system, which is well on its way to being net zero, where our incumbent form of generation is likely to be domestically sourced green electrons produced in you know around 40 gigawatts of offshore wind, onshore wind, solar. We're likely to be making green hydrogen here at that point. We're approaching a quarter of the market at the moment of new car sales in the UK is plug-in. You can see that being much higher, maybe even 50% or more, with an EV ban coming in in 2030. So, this world is one of a much more vibrant demand side where we're going to need a much more flexible system, where we're going to need price signals that are passed from cheap production at the wind farm through to the consumer, um, and where we've got lots of different technologies in consumer homes or people wanting to access them, and therefore probably wanting services like agile tariffs or Load shifting off the back of them, both so that we can keep our grid operational, but also because that will reward customers for doing the right thing and perhaps even finance the access to these technologies for many. so the retailers are in the heart of that transition, and the and the big question is, can you design a retail market which is about those services and about you know services both to the grid in terms of bundling up consumer demand and offering things like load shifting? but also services to the consumer in terms of you know discounted energy efficient and low carbon heating products and, and EV charging points and so on. And the services that make them work. So things like agile tariffs, so you can charge when power is cheap in the UK. That is the world that we're building, physically building in 2030. And what I'm saying is that our retail policy has not reflected that at all. Now, what that actually looks like is really challenging. And so we're putting our minds to mm. it in Energy UK. I think government will be putting their minds to it now.
0: Offshore has been criticised for its handling of, of the price spikes and its response to some of the supplies going bust, maybe for a lack of teeth in, in general. Do you think regulations were too lax, uh, allowing too many unhedged participants in?
1: Yeah, you said at the beginning of this, is it, is it one of those things where everyone's having a go at industry actually no not so far because i think people recognize okay. that i'm sure on the other side of this we'll find some bad practice you always do in moments like this but generally i think people are acknowledging that there has been mm. a failure of policy or regulation somewhere here and and just on the point of market conditions really important to note that it's a very well regulated market in the uk in general it's why investors want to be here we you know there's a 200 page supply license it's not just plug and play in the uk it's it's difficult in theory to get get in here versus some other markets. However, I think it is clear that we have been chasing the wrong metrics, as I said, and, and you know, government was very, very keen to have lots of suppliers in the market and thought that that would drive competition and therefore better service. And I don't think we're convinced of that argument. What we are worried about very much in the spring is making sure that you don't have you know bad practice or zombie companies or companies coming into the market and kind of capitalizing on what will be a fragile situation as the gas price starts to fall again so i think it's right that ofgem are proposing to look at um suspending supply licenses in the uk for a period of time just to give the market some stability and to give those that are stepping up in this crisis, you know, time to um, stabilise themselves and and look to next year. In the long run, I think that's a question for the regulator. And actually, bigger than that, I think it's a question for government. You know, they, they talk about the market doing its job in terms of setting the number of companies. But that sort of misses how regulated this market is in the UK. <laughs> and so mm. if they want lots and lots of companies... That's one regulatory model. If they want fewer sustainable companies, that's a different regulatory model. The point is government kind of has to decide what it thinks the size of the market should be and the right way to regulate them. So, you know, we welcome anything to kind of bring stability over the next period, um, particularly given what we're going through. Thereafter, it's a decision for government and the regulator.
0: Turning to the wholesale market, now, Emma, you know, you mentioned offshore wind, you know, some elements of onshore wind and providing a lot of power to, to households and industry in the UK and, and then the, the services that go with that. But is it time to take a look at the marginal cost model in the wholesale market? Because a lot of what you're talking about here and what will happen as we go towards net zero is is zero marginal cost generation. So what what will happen? What will that do to, to the wholesale market?
1: Oh, yeah, I, this is a personal view because I don't think we're, Fully there yet, but again, if you think about I would encourage listeners you know who, who come from markets beyond the u k to contemplate this world, which is one in which the incumbent form of energy generation is likely to be low cost renewables producing renewable green electrons right it's not it's not a fueled world anymore it's one where the capets of the infrastructure is uh, you know a cost, and then the the future system is driven by a very different commodity to molecules we dig up and burn and so when we talk about things like price cannibalization or marginal costs i wonder whether actually having a market orientated around fossil fuels might not be the market you would design if someone told you that the system was going to be i mean in the uk the system's going to be 60 70% plus renewables plus evs on the demand side plus a significant degree of heat electrification, plus hydrogen, a lot of which we might manufacture with those same turbines. Would you design a market and financial rewards in that market and values in that market around anything other than electrons? And and what does that look like? And and look, I mean, mean, that that sounds quite pie in the sky, right? Because we're part of a global energy market, so the wholesale price is the wholesale price. But at the moment... For example, in the UK, electricity is tracking the gas price, which makes it very difficult for us to demonstrate that decarbonising heat by getting off gas might be a good idea, even though electricity is theoretically cheaper at the moment than the international gas market. So there are some really fundamental questions about energy market design that this technology shift should be asking. And I don't hear enough people talking about them. Um, It's a similar thing, by the way, with how you value flexibility Mm. in the market, which is the other key characteristic. That's where the value will be is, you know, rapid dispatch, flexibility technology, storage technologies, you know, dynamic price signals and on the demand side and agile tariffs. What, how do you make sure those things come forward too in a world that has historically been driven by the need to build large infrastructure and the price signals thereof? So it's really, really complicated. That's a very personal kind of abstract thought about what the world might look like in 2050 in the interim. <laughs> We are gearing up in the UK to look again at our electricity market reform, EMR, which is our kind of package of things like our capacity market, our contract for difference auction and the other markets we have in the UK. I think we're going to go through a period of incremental change at 2030 and then maybe in a position to ask ourselves some of these bigger questions.
0: There have been certain noises in parts, other parts of Europe that are questioning the marginal cost model when you have for example you know when certain companies are making a lot of windfall profits because if, if the price of electricity is coming off the back of gas when when wind you know you have wind power operators uh, earning quite a lot on the basis of that model so i think the discussions probably not at an advanced stage but it's certainly in the early stages they're looking at what what is best to take us to 2050 but but Emma you know another question here that, that certainly is important for the UK's uh, neighbors or the surrounding countries uh, that are that are coupled to the UK by interconnectors i'm just wondering what kind of progress has been made between the UK and the EU at resolving the issue of the, the decoupling of the markets
1: yeah not enough okay. so not not nearly enough so far the UK carbon price has in our new independent ETS has roughly tracked the EU ETS which means the relative Fragility compared to a link market of a non-link market it hasn't been as clear, though that has shifted. You know, in, in recent weeks we're starting to see some price divergence. I think it's a difficult. It's one of those things that's not yet been top of the list, and there are other issues in the Brexit withdrawal agreement that I know that the UK government is negotiating on at the moment with the EU. So it's possibly one of those things of lack of resource, but certainly as far as we're concerned in the UK there are massive benefits to UK consumers and to everything else we're trying to do to have those markets linked. So we're pushing for linkage. The thing to have an eye on is market reform. You know, the EU is talking about extending their carbon market into things like, you know, heat and and other areas. The same noises have been being made in the UK around how we finance the low carbon transition for things like heat or agriculture or transport and whether you could do it through an ETS mechanism versus carbon taxes or some other measure. And I just think, you know, the more those markets diverge in terms of what they cover and the more the price diverges, the harder it will be to link. So we are putting as much pressure on as possible. But as you say, not nearly enough has been done so far.
0: And I'm talking specifically about the market coupling of the cables, the interconnectors to the UK.
1: The interconnectors. As far as I know, the interconnector conversation, I mean, they're bilaterals, right? So in that sense, there's a limited amount that you can do at a national level apart from articulate the fact that you want them and how many you need (laughs) and kind of create a positive relationship to get them built. I think the, those conversations are progressing. In the UK, we we know we need interconnection and we're interested in it now because of the scale of the offshore wind industry in the North Sea um, and the ability to do things like meshed grids eventually as well, which then jurisdictionally means that it's not just a kind of bilateral conversation that's commercial and between two countries it becomes something which is much more about North Sea cooperation. So we want to see that North Sea body that was supposed to be looking at things like mesh grids and interconnection really get off the ground. And again, progress has been slow there. But that's as much as I can say about interconnectors because they are so much subject to just those kind of bilateral talks.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's a bit of a I don't know tricky subject here. I'm I'm, I'm obviously Montel's based in Oslo, Norway, and and amongst right. so, you know, uh, for Norwegian customers they're seeing their power and price increases because there's a lot of it's flowing to the UK. But um uh, I'm sure there'll be uh, be moments when that is reciprocated, especially with Hopefully the...
1: more and more so. <laughs> yeah, I can promise you with the scale of the wind fleet that we're building off the shore of the the shores of Scotland and the East Coast here that there will be merit for European markets in having interconnection with the UK just because of the sheer amount of capacity we're going to have here that we won't necessarily be able to use. So I think there are reasons to think for, for those of you in Oslo that it's a good thing to be interconnected with the UK, even if right now it doesn't seem the way.
0: Exactly. So I think there's, there's light on that, on that cable further down the line. Yeah. Emma, in terms of you mentioned the EMR, what kind of work would you like National Grid to be doing to adapt the capacity market to take on more renewables?
1: I would say this is not National Grid's job, right? This is a regulatory job in that National Grid responds to whatever government and the regulator says the capacity market should be. You know, that, the ESO, the energy systems operator, so the independent bit of National Grid that runs the system, obviously sets things like the margin out and, and says what we need to commission each year. But they, i give this to National Grid, the margins in the UK are always pretty good. They do a good job. We're looking at a fairly crunchy decade, as I said, in terms of security of supply and doing the transition. But there's our system operator is very, very good at managing those risks. And, and even in this year, you know, given all the challenges in the market, there has so far been no security of supply risk in the UK. So I think in that sense, National Grid are Fine, it's the... The regulatory framework for the capacity market, yeah, should it have more renewables in? I mean, that's one of the big questions about a a world where you've got more and more technologies able to do the functions Mm -hmm. of the other technologies. So (laughs) I don't know about that. I mean, if you've got uh, things like green gases and hydrogen coming in, do they sit in a capacity market? Is that the best place to fund them or do they need something like a CFD mechanism to kind of drive them? You know, things like carbon capture and storage and hydrogen in the U.K., looks like it's going to be done through something like a CFD auction. On the other hand, you've now got renewables, which when coupled with storage and and as they frequently are co-located or co-located with electrolyzers and making hydrogen, are they a different kind of asset to other kinds of renewables? So should they sit in a capacity market if they can provide that kind of service, or should they sit in the CFD or should there be rules about, you know, which and both? And so I think over the last five years or so, we're starting to see a blurring of those markets and what they're for. And that's one of the questions for these incremental changes in EMR. Now, I don't yet have the answer to that because I only ever, unless I say it's my opinion, i I'm got to reflect the views of the members. And we've obviously got quite a range of views, but we have just kickstarted our EMR 2.0 work with the membership of Energy UK. So you'll start to see some of that coming forward. But I think everyone acknowledges that the current framework is creaking to deliver what we need it to do. So there's a, it's a good time to look again. Whether or not it's the time to kind of scrub the blackboard clean and draw something new, difficult to say because you do also want to keep that kind of stability that we've got in the UK and that investor confidence.
0: But make use of the energy crisis to create new reforms or, or to, to, to change uh, to make important changes. Final question, Emma, really. I mean, you you highlighted all the the key changes that are required, but to what extent will we still need to rely on, on gas in the next decade in the UK?
1: So we can just default to the Committee on Climate Change here. So in the UK, we're modelling a energy system where we'll have... So at the moment, on the demand side, we've got 80% of uh, UK consumers on gas boilers. I would argue that the gas crisis has indicated our dependence on imports in the UK for gas. And given the shift to domestically produced electrons over the next decade, it makes sense to try to help households get off gas as much as possible and just reduce our dependency in the system. So that's the first thing. And I think that's something the government has also said in response to the crisis. The other thing in terms of gas in the system, though, is that we it's still there in most of the models. So even in a net zero power system model, we've got the Committee on Climate Change has got an unabated gas plant in for emergency events. So if you have two weeks in the middle of winter with no wind, for example, and we don't have another form of long duration storage, there is a proposal to keep on unabated gas for that kind of moment. Similarly, we think you need to invest in gas plants so long as it's gas plant, which is going to convert to um, zero carbon compatible hydrogen or carbon capture and storage technologies over the next decade. And that's because in the UK, most of our system models show a mix that's about 70% renewables, sometimes 80% renewables, but it gets quite difficult Mm. to do the last... 15, 20% because of the system costs of managing that much variability. So then we've got nuclear in the mix plus a bit of something else, which usually comes out as being um CCGT with carbon capture or biomass with carbon capture or hydrogen. So and then plus this other gas for for real system challenges. So that's the picture in the UK. So yeah, you know, we're all of the above over here, so long as we get emissions right down. And then beyond 2030, you know, who knows? But a lot's changed in the last 10 years. So
0: (laughs) Exactly. Who knows? Well, Emma, best of luck with that. And thanks very much for being a guest on the Montel Weekly Podcast this week. Thank you. So, listeners, you can now follow the podcast on our own Twitter account, aptly named the Montel Weekly Podcast. Please direct message any suggestions, questions, or, you know, let us know if you you think you have a good idea for a guest on the show. You can also send us an email to podcast at montelnews.com. Lastly, remember to keep up to date with all that's happening in energy markets on Montel News. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you and goodbye.